talked over you so we got to do it again this is show business this is what happens in show business you got to do it over and over again until you get it right hi this is Kenny. this guy's making too much noise can you go get a toy from your room can you go get a toy from your room so that we can show baked and awake yeah okay hi this is Kenny. come in again you're listening to baked and awake thing on. Alright. Greetings, friends. This is your host, Steve. Thanks for joining me. Welcome once again to the Baked and Awake Show. Episode 44 of the podcast comes to you in part due to the support of a new company called Budsy. Budsy is a cannabis tech company that utilizes AI to deliver you the high you're looking for. The full-featured beta test version of their app is currently live in Santa Barbara County, California. You can learn more at budsy.io, where you can download the web app for free. Also, check out their cannabis culture podcast, Token Talk where they speak to smokers all around the world about 420 culture in their countries. for real um before however we move you know too far on past that little spot we just did for budsy there i want to say just you know a little bit about how excited i am about being able to do that spot i mentioned in my last episode when i ran the first little end of the episode spot for those folks that they had found me online and reached out to me. This is exactly how I want to start out 
exploring and getting my little toes wet with partnerships for supporting the show. These folks are building a product that's relevant to cannabis folks like myself, for whom it's important in our lives. I know they're beta testing in California right now, but I, I anticipate they're trying to roll this out in all sorts of legal markets around the country as it gets out of beta. Um, they listen to the podcast. They're podcasters themselves. I listened to their podcast, Token Talk, a couple different episodes of it. I liked it a lot. I suggest you start with the most recent one, which they seem to have like taken a little break and rebooted and uh, put uh, you know a lot of energy into the into the new push. Uh, I think they're doing some neat stuff. I have downloaded the beta test version of the app, but being in Washington State, um, it looks like the Budsy business model is sort of, you know, working with leveraging the the uh, ability to deliver in legal states. So, um, I mean, how exciting is that? You know, it's kind of something that we experienced uh, to a small extent once upon a time with uh, early versions of Leafly and Weed Maps, which would point us at... Um, the dispensaries and including in a, in a few cases there during like the uh, transition into 502 a few people were delivering here in Washington uh, it was pretty cool there actually um, so yeah you know they're ticking off a lot of boxes including uh, tickling my conspiracy theory bone you know here it is an AI based cannabis you know, finding and delivering a uh, mobile application uh, that lives in your web browser that requires a terms of service agreement and permissions like every other app that we download in our lives. And they're in beta test, so they're actively soliciting feedback on the app and looking for that, uh, you know, that public-facing interaction with what they're bringing to the market. So, I mean, I don't know how much better I could have done. These guys reached out and found me. They're totally in my wheelhouse for what they're doing. I love it. I'm excited about it. I wish I could test their uh, app more more rigorously from here in Washington State. It's you know doesn't look like I'm going to be able to do that right now. Um, you know, until some things change for us, but I thought it was awesome. So, um, looking forward to and hoping to maybe continue to work with these folks. Uh, I think we have one more, uh, spot booked for next episode and we'll see how we do for them. Maybe we'll continue that relationship from there. I hope a few of you listening from California will check them out. Budzy.io. Um... Yeah, so cool shit as far as I'm concerned. I love it. I love it. Um, I also wanted to let you guys know about another really cool experience I had uh, very recently here on Instagram. I follow this account of uh, a cool Western Washington dude. I figured out pretty quickly after initially following him when I didn't quite know uh, where he was located, etc., that uh, this dude is in Washington. Is, is uh, he goes on on Instagram by the handle Future Forty Two Hundred, okay? And um, Future Forty Two Hundred is a uh, 
basically a uh, he's a Washington State uh, cannabis grower. Uh, he's involved in the I five hundred two industry. Uh, I believe he's a producer processor license holder. He's also working in a lot of the same lanes that I like to spend time in, those being sort of um, things analogous to what we've started to explore in the form of things like the Open Cannabis Project, uh, certain sort of priorities and... uh, best practices, if you will, that I uh, feel, you know, would be behoove us in our industry, not only here in Washington, but all around the country as our respective legal markets become launched and then um, go through their growing pains and transitions into ever more uh, robust and uh, sustainable, you know, sort of models. Um, where I'm going with this is is uh, future 4200 uh, Dustin. I believe he's totally fine with uh, sharing his name. Uh, he shared it with me when I was asking him, you know, for more details about what he was all about and what he was uh, what he was up to, what he was working on. Uh, he's a permaculture guy. He is a uh, hemp industrial hemp over uh, lumber industry guy here in Washington State. We have a long term sort of. Uh, you know, well, obviously, uh, lumber is one of the pillars of the state's economy from the beginnings of Washington State, maybe when it was a territory before it was even a state. Um, we're definitely known as a state of, you know, wood mills and lumber mills, Weyerhaeuser being one of our biggest logging and paper companies, um, the Dunder Mifflin of Washington State, Weyerhaeuser, the, the Boeing of the uh, logging companies out here, Big Daddy. There's a few others, though. Um, in addition to, you know, what Dustin does in his uh, day-to-day business in, in the legal cannabis uh, realm, he is also aggressively working to pull together, catalog, and distribute freely as much information as he can about cannabis science. That's cannabinoids, that's terpenes, that's uh, uh, documents on processes such as, excuse me, processes such as, let me do a little slight adjustment there, my background sound, there we go, extraction processes, growing, nutrition, all sorts of things. Uh, talking IPM, which uh, is shorthand for integrated pest management. You name it. If it relates to growing cannabis, curing cannabis, processing cannabis into different hash oils of different forms, of which there are myriad, he's trying to pull together these inf- these sort of documents folks all around the country and all around the world. They've created a huge repository on a Google Drive that he's pointing people at and sharing freely, encouraging others to upload worthwhile information that they have, that they've 
pulled together themselves over the years. Um, he reached out to me, said, again, and this is so, th- I'm bringing this up because this is how you get on my podcast anyway. Um, you know, not unlike my friend Nate Lopez, who reached out to me, having listened to the show, being stoked about the show first and foremost, and feeling a connection with what, you know, I was doing. Similarly, Future 4200, Dustin, reached out. He's like, bro, I'm listening. I like what you're doing. I'd love to come on and sit down and talk cannabis with you. And he's probably heard me asking for folks to come on and share their stories, share their mission, uh, share their passion, you know, drop some of that knowledge for us, help us be one of the points, one of those little nozzles, one of those little garden hoses that's sprinkling that uh, knowledge out there. Um, So, you know, excited to hear from him in such a capacity, already having been following him and keeping up with his work, um, having already, you know, uh, sort of tickled the edges of some of the docs on uh, the Google Drive. Um, I was I was delighted naturally. So uh, Dustin and I are gonna you know we're I let him know that I was gonna say uh, you know say hi to the audience today on his behalf and introduce him uh, and the fact that you know I'm looking forward to sitting down with him very soon. I think we're gonna want to talk permaculture and gardening because he had a lot to say to me. Um, you know, great pointers and. Uh, interesting uh, insights about uh, the garden and composting and stuff like that. Um, And then maybe we'll talk a little bit of, you know, Washington State industry and state of affairs uh, and go from there. If we have a good talk, which I expect we will, maybe we can look forward to future discussions with Dustin as well, especially as news hits here in the market, you know, on this industrial hemp front. I love it couldn't be more excited about that whole scene I, there's some there is some interesting stuff about the farm bill but you know that's a, a topic we've been on we'll get back to it again as well so um gosh i think fuck it's almost 15 minutes in here i haven't sparked i got two fucking huge unnecessary joints right in front of me they're both la confidential one of my definitely uh, probably in my top 10 or 15 uh you know a strain i've only known for the last few years so i can't put it too much higher than that um and maybe only for the last couple of years really um probably heard of it before that but haven't really started seeing it um yeah the la confidential excuse me that we have today came from our garden uh smooth sailing down in tacoma so this is one that um we grew and that we'll be offering in the stores here uh, pretty soon. And uh, I was delighted when I saw this stuff in the grow. Uh, it looked great the whole time coming up. Uh, obviously, uh, you really get to see the potential when the plants move into flower. Um, and uh, yeah, just uh, excited to smoke it today with you together. We're going to talk about it in just a minute. I want you guys to uh, do your usual. All right. Take a moment right now. I'm going to do the same. I'm already rolled up, but I know you need a quick second. Go clean that dirty-ass pipe, all right? Get it in as good a shape as you can, and uh, grab a fresh drink. Come on back. We're going to talk about, well, a bunch of different stuff. I'll tell you about it when you get back.
How you doing? My name is PJ. I'm from the BickerBots podcast. BickerBots podcast is basically what happens when you take a Republican, a Libertarian, and a Liberal and sit them all in front of the mics and discuss current events and uh, most pop culture. Would it be cheating to bang a smoking hot sex robot? Pack, please answer because I need to know. Oh, you need to know? (laughs) So we here at the BickerBots podcast feel everyone's special, even the gingers. I'm going to apologize to all the ginger listeners at this time. Ray Ray's a stout racist. You just said they should be 50% off at the adoption homes. <laughs> just saying. We care about worldly issues like our brothers down under and their sex crazed koala bears. Koala chlamydia and all time high and is spreading. Bro, get them koalas some fucking rubbers. Doesn't Here's the Bickerbots podcast. We don't judge people based on their sexuality. Not, not all of them, but but it's their version. It's not like So they have version. Okay, huh, interesting. Oh, you're starting to think about all them catch and fucking, huh? <laughs> yeah, I, I listened to the Bestiality episode. That was <laughs> quite interesting conversation, let me tell you. Uh, there's nothing interesting about it. It's just man, beast, love. love. Exactly. <laughs> well, if you like what you heard, we're on Stitcher, iTunes, SoundCloud, basically any platform you can download a podcast on. Hope you got your act together. That's probably the last break we're gonna get. We gotta get to work here. <laughs> uh, all right. Well, let's see here. I promised to tell you about LA Confidential. Let's smoke that shit though. Let's layer it up. Like I said, a lot of times I like to smoke joints. Um, well, in general, but um, it's great for the podcast because it's not, you know, it's not like a noisy glugging uh, water pipe. Um, you know, I mean, I don't mind turning the torch on on you now and then and blasting a dab off with you. It's it's fun. Hopefully, you guys find that fun too. But uh, you know, joints are perfect. They're low low overhead, right? Just puff away. Um, let you feel like you never quit smoking cigarettes, right? So, uh, where did I go for my LA Confidential definition? I went to somewhere new. It's called potguide.com. Um, I don't know. They're a new one. I think, I don't think we've done a description off of them before. Um, but I, I liked it. So they got 4.5 out of 5 stars on LA Confidential. A few different images here of it. Looks like all from one person. Kindreviews.com. Anyway, uh, they're saying the origin is California, USA, via Amsterdam. Um, It's an indica-dominant hybrid, as I said. And uh, on their description... They have, by combining a legendary Los Angeles area Afghani with another choice Afghani specimen, DNA genetics created a very potent indica hybrid in LA Confidential. The plant has massive dark green fan leaves, is disease and mold resistant, and yields well with proper care. The old school sweet and spicy Afghani taste brings to mind the mother OG Affy, 
Afghani, being Afghani. Well, so yeah, I mean, maybe it goes by Afi, OG Afi. Yeah, that is a, that is a strain by the sound of it. Uh, it looks like OG LA Afi is crossed with Afghani to get to LA Confidential. Um, they go on, they got a little bit more here on qualities. They say this is a very relaxing and narcotic indica. Even in smaller doses, most users will find themselves sinking into the couch with a smile on their face for quite a while. At higher dosages, it's practically an express train to sleep. It's entertaining with the initial potency, but ultimately sedates and leads to deep relaxation. This is a great strain for true Afghani lovers. It's definitely more of an evening, late night type of choice for most people. So. And for the potential growing minded listeners, they go a little further. They say here, there are two standard phenotypes, one of which that grows an extremely strong central cola, and the other of which is a little branchier. Both have dark indica leaves and can take a heavy feeding, resist disease and mold, and work well in small quarters. That's typical of indicas. Um, you know, that's why indicas are very popular in northern climates and in indoor grows, shorter grow cycle typically than many sativas, um, and a compact sort of structure. Uh, anyway, it's an easy to grow plant that is a good choice for beginners in any medium. So thank you, potguide.com, for that description. And um, so I, I have been fucking with this a little bit uh, for the last, uh, you know, week or so. I've had this sample for a little bit, so. Um, really like it. It is potent. It is very uh, typical indica in its presentation. It does have a um, marked sedative characteristic. Uh, you know, like if you're rolling joints, like I tend to roll them, you know, a couple grams at least. Um, you know, you might you might just need to set it down halfway through. Come back to that bad boy because uh, it could be nap time if you're smoking it during the middle of the day. Uh, and not, you know, and not an indica person, for sure. So, uh, I love it. It's right up my alley. I'm always trying to, you know, stay a little bit more grounded. So, all right. So, uh, let's see. On Instagram, I teased this story. So, just a little anecdote for you about a little something that uh, I first, I mean, I did this to myself, so it's a little bit different uh, than the spirit of the word, but I was chatting with my friends uh, from Damaged Goods in our in our uh, private Slack, our network uh, Slack channel the other day, uh, BSing about our shows and stuff, and uh, what did I say? Oh, I, I think I needed to give somebody some of my personal details, including my address, right? And I was like, nobody better red book me. And they all sort of chuckled, and they're like, what, what does that mean? 
to it, you are also probably saying, what the fuck does that mean, Steve? What are you talking about? Well, red booking, a very few of you <laughs> will be chuckling right now because you'll, you'll have already recognized where I'm going with this. Uh, and it's a very particular set of uh, friends of mine, a, a very few uh, tiny minority of whom might be listening to this, uh, but who all of whom are current or former members of an internet community where this custom was a uh, time-honored tradition where when, for example, in a buy-and-sell discussion about Oh, for the sake of argument, let's say spare moped parts. Uh, someone posts in a public thread as opposed to in a private message their home address as to where to ship said parts. Uh, in this particular web forum, it was often the custom that if a savvy member of the community happened to catch you doing such a uh, noobish behavior as posting your address like that, the offending poster may very well have a perfectly satisfactory interaction with their seller who they're buying parts from, but they may also find themselves on the receiving end of a subscription to Ladies Lifestyle Magazine Red Book. In their name. Uh, a lot of times back in the day, and this is, you know, this is maybe maybe dying out a little bit these days. I know periodicals, printed magazines are, you know, not doing as good as they have historically these days. Uh, I don't know how Red Book's doing in particular, but, you know, they might have also signed you up for the Publishers Clearinghouse Sweepstakes. They might have signed you up for Reader's Digest or Sunset Magazine. Maybe in more recent times, O, Oprah's Magazine. You know, you get the idea. You know, you're some edgy, again, for the sake of argument, counterculture moped kid who's trying to, you know, make some deals on the internet with your friends and doing your thing. And You know, admittedly, this is a lot less uh, dangerous and... Uh, inconveniencing or, well, potentially uh, deadly is uh, something like the modern-day equivalent, which might be what? Swatting somebody when you're mad at them for killing you and your whole party over and over again in, in Black Ops uh, or to, to be current Fortnite uh, <laughs> um, player unknown. Uh, you know, one of those type games. Um... All right, so, you know, you can tell the L.A. Confidential is getting me here already. I, I even put it down. I'm going to put it back up. Let's see how much worse it can get, right? If we can still tell a story at all. So, what the fuck are you talking about, Steve? Why are you telling us about red booking? I red booked myself, you guys. I red booked myself. I red booked myself. Here's how. We're gardeners, as you know. I'm on the internet the other morning. It might have even been the dreaded 
the dreaded Facebook. But uh, I'm in one of my gardening groups. Yeah, it was Facebook. I'm in one of my gardening groups, and I see somebody posting about how they just received their chip drop. They just received their chip drop. What's a chip drop? There's a whole thread about it. They're talking about how they got their whole driveway filled up with uh, mulch, tree mulch, for free. Mulch is great for top dressing your, you know, raised beds, dress around all your shrubs and trees, your perennials, you know, your fucking landscaping and stuff. You know, arborists and stuff, they need to get rid of this, right? People often go down to their hardware store, their, you know, local uh, supply store, their whatever, um, and buy mulch in bags, five bucks a shot, ten bucks a shot for a cubic yard or two, right? Adds up pretty quick, you know. You, you just do a few bags because you're not going to go broke on frickin' tree bark, right? So, you know, Chip Drop is this service where they hook up arborists with people who want mulch for their gardens. There's a popular gardening technique. Popular. It's, it's a gardening technique. Some people do it. It's called Back to Eden Gardening, and it utilizes heavy mulching um, as a permaculture sort of, um, you know, part of their strategy. We're going to go into that in the future because naturally where I'm going with this is this is how I read book myself, you guys. So they, these people are all talking in the thread about how they waited weeks or months. In some cases, somebody didn't get a, a chip drop for the whole season. But they're like, yeah, you just got to be patient. Oh, yeah, you got to update your information a little better and make sure they know where you're at. Da-da-da, this and that. But, you know, you'll get one eventually. It'll be great. It'll be bigger than you think. tapped my way on over to chip drop pretty quick there signed right up it only takes 60 seconds slow down don't touch your fucking computer don't touch your don't go there yet okay just listen to the rest of the story you don't want to go there yet uh i went over to chip drop signed up you could choose if you wanted chips if you wanted chips and logs or if you wanted just logs so i think you can get firewood too anyway they're like yep be patient. Um, we Once you've signed up and agreed to the terms of service... Oh, yeah. There was terms of service. Once you've signed up and agreed to the terms of service, uh, you'll get no warning. Okay? We don't call ahead. We just we need to come and drop this in your driveway or on the road next to your house, you know, where you say to. Um, put your instructions here. On my block, I can tell you right now, if this had been dropped in the road, I would have had a ticket about it by the city same day or been probably talking to somebody that probably would have been at my front door so you know it's got to go in your driveway uh by the way side note i have a mildly broken down minivan in my driveway taking up the whole driveway uh so why am i telling you this story because you guys i signed up for chip drop and like two hours later a truck was in front of my house with 15 yards worth of mulched up trees If you don't know what 15 yards worth of mulch looks like, don't worry, because I'm going to post it to Instagram when I post this episode. It's a fucking shit ton. 
it was taller than the fence in front of my house. It was almost as tall as me, and it took up our whole driveway, which is probably 25 feet long. Uh, in order to get it in the driveway, I had to move the van down into in front of the house, where it hasn't moved from in over a year. Still trying to gotta get that thing back up off the street in the next day or two, or I'm going to get a ticket on that for sure. Uh, don't worry about it. We got it. It's under control. Taking care of it. <laughs> this is fine. So these guys show up like two hours later. Uh, they're like, oh, yeah, we'll just eat our lunch in the truck while you get that truck out of your driveway. And then we're going to dump this stuff. I hadn't even gotten to tell Nicole about this stuff yet, you guys. Like, anything about the plan, anything about that I had even heard of Chip Drop, that I knew anything about it. I don't need, uh, yeah. This just all just went down, like, in one day. Well, yeah. So, got the drop. Uh, you know, had a mild heart attack, took a little video of them dumping it out, too. We'll see how much of it I got. I've been, uh, yeah, never mind. We'll see how much of it I got. I'll share some of it with you guys, whatever I've got. Um, it's pretty funny shit, though. It's, it's a huge pile of bark. Um, it, it, you know, whole tree, right? You know, from leaves down to the stump, you know. Um, two or three of them, at least, because this truck was full to the brim. Uh, anyway, long story longer. No, no, I'll, I'll wrap it up on this one. Um, I actually you know, have been dumping it like wild all around my property, all in the, the type of spots that we were just talking about. And I did have some dim notion of what I wanted to do with this stuff when I started signing up for it, but I thought I'd have a few weeks, if not a month or something, to figure it out before somebody decided to come by. But who the hell am I, hell am I kidding? It's Washington State. It's prime season. It's go time for landscapers all around. I, I've been landscaping, you know? I'm Yeah, you know, there's yard waste everywhere. I make a lot of yard waste without chopping down any trees. So who am I kidding? Uh, I bet everybody around here is getting chip dropped like crazy when they sign up for that shit. Um, by the way, so make sure you're ready when you sign up. And then make sure you're off the list once they've delivered successfully. It does actually seem to be fully automated on that front. But look, check for yourself to make sure. Because... I'm pretty sure that if you don't tell them to not come back, they will come back and they will bury your whole front yard, your home, your pets, and your family with tree mulch. It'll be free, so that's the good news. that's my plug for free you're welcome ship drop and cautionary statement <laughs> about that we've already placed a, a little classified in the local listings for offer up I had a bunch of people come by and scoop up mulch already I've been giving it to my neighbors it's actually turned into a really fun thing because it's bringing the neighbors together and I'm giving mulch out to everybody we're the mulch mulch merchants of Skyway Washington right now uh so it's going great it's fun and uh you know I'll do it again 
uh, at some point in time. I think I'll try the firewood, you know, version of this next. Uh, but the funny thing is, one of the guys who came, Mike, shout out, neighbor Mike, if you ever listen to this podcast, he comes by, he gets a bunch of bark from me, and he tells me, I got chip dropped. I got the firewood. He's like, here's my number. Come see me. He's got seasoned firewood because he got chip dropped firewood from them like a year ago, and he's still trying to go through it. I love it. So, yeah, that's my, uh, there you go. You know, we had a good chuckle over that because I told him that, hey, I found out about this shit this morning, and here we are together standing here now. Um, yeah, chip drop, red booking. Now you know what red booking is, too. So feel free to do that to somebody sometime. Don't swat anybody. That would be horrible and potentially super dangerous. Just the wor- one of the worst things. Don't don't ever do that. Don't ever do that. Red book them, though. <laughs> red book the fucking shit out of them. Probably don't chip drop somebody, though. That would be brutal. That would be so cold. But you did not get the idea from me. <laughs> oh, shit. All right. Uh, we're definitely going to be over an hour. Definitely. Because I'm going to tell you a story now. It's going to get a little bit more chilled, though, and, and focused. All right. We're moving from red booking myself, um, which, you know, I'm my own worst enemy. Many of you probably are. Uh, I made a lot of work for myself. I've been lumping wheelbarrow loads of that mulch for days already, and I will be for quite a few more before I'm really done with it. But, uh, hey, it's been fun at the same time. So don't let me stop you, actually. But just, you know, now you know what's up. Don't underestimate that shit. Um, we're going to, yeah, we're going we're gonna to switch it up. We're going to talk about... Uh, None of the culty stuff and stuff that I've been talking about getting ready to get into, although I'm super excited about, you know, getting back into that area. Um, Just the religion, spirituality, and where, like, sort of the darker underbelly of some different organizations that just ones that I've had some, you know, cursory uh, interest in or exposure to over the years. Um, Listen to last week's episode to get a preview of, you know, some of that stuff that I you know, I'm planning on getting into here in in coming weeks. But um, another topic, and it's a topic that I have teased much earlier on, um, but that I haven't gotten into yet because it's it's big, it's intimidating, it's scientific, it's, um, you know, like alternative explanation, uh, scientific for, you know, and alternative mythology kind of thing, or it's sort of uh, a synthesis of or a acknowledgement of myth and the uh, inherent, you know, fidelity of the information that's potentially encoded into myth, both oral tradition and written and uh, artistically um, down through history. Uh, And that is, so yeah, spit it out, Steve. It is the electric universe theory. Um, What I want to do tonight is do a introduction to this concept and then begin to go into it in sort of a serialized uh, form over the next few episodes um, in, you know, as part of 
each of these, you know, next few episodes. It won't be the, necessarily the whole episode every time, but we'll we'll spend some time on one concept or another, and then maybe get around to doing, you know, a full blown hour block, you know, in a in a couple of shows here uh, on it at some point. But we'll we'll see how we want to handle it. I want to introduce you guys to the concept of the Thunderbolts Project, uh, which you can find online at thunderboltsproject.org. And uh, these guys are sort of the, uh, the, I believe it's an international organization. I've been checking that website out for years now, on and off. Um, and they point you at tons of videos that they've made, lots of informative videos um, and talks and lectures. There's, you know, audio books and legit books and um, hundreds of pages of PDFs and things of different sorts, uh, all about the electric universe theory, which basically, you know, we're going to introduce tonight in the form of um, an abstract for a paper uh, called the Ganymede Hypothesis. Um, so, the Ganymede Hypothesis is the is the more you know, not even the more fun because the electric universe theory is amazing to to ponder and to you know think about and to consider as potentially a valid model for the universe um but the ganymede hypothesis and an attendant uh sort of buzzword phrase um which is the purple dawn theory which is associated directly with the ganymede hypothesis uh, postulates an alternative creation uh myth or uh history let's say alternative creation history because we have the information according to the electric universe theory folks encoded and and shown to us in so many ways through in particular Sumerian culture the mathematics of it the architecture and the remaining uh, records from that uh, culture and civilization the evidence of it uh, passed down through the Near East and into Egypt and their, hence their art, architecture, and language, records keeping. Um, those of you who are sitting here listening to, you know, the 44th episode of this podcast or anything resembling it um, will definitely be familiar with all sorts of folks these days who speak uh, at length and very eloquently about the uh, deep similarities and connections and direct parallels in the creation myths of Christianity, Judaism, Islam, indigenous uh, Hinduism, Buddhism, indigenous uh, like uh, tribal cultural religions uh, all around the world in, in I hate to use the term like developing nations, it's not it's not even fair. Perennially oppressed and exploited nations, <laughs> serially preyed upon uh, nations around the world. I don't know. Anyway, um, that you know, this is Dead Sea Scrolls territory. Okay, this is Zechariah Sitchin territory. This is um, stuff that. I mean, I think there's a great documentary on Netflix right now. If 
you guys aren't familiar with it. Um, this, all right, I'll contain this tangent to one sentence, but it's it's wonderful. Um, as pertains to the Egyptians and their culture and dating the birth of that culture, uh, understanding uh, how the pyramids were created and for what purpose, etc. Uh, the Pyramid Code is a uh, delightful, like four or five episode long, like long form documentary about the pyramids and how the whole timeline of ancient Egypt civilization may be slightly off by a couple thousand years, but it's enough to make a big difference in all of prehistory and early history and the history of Christianity and when everything really happened there. Um, there's didn't contain it to one sentence even remotely. LA Confidential, thank you very much. <laughs> uh, you know what? Yeah, we'll 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 come back to that. Alright, we're gonna we're gonna come back to that. We're gonna go to the Ganymede hypothesis. Ganymede hypothesis, which postulates that humanity, um, as we know it today, modern man, um, is in many ways unsuited biologically to have really evolved. Uh, for their entire history here on Earth. <laughs> Hear me out. I'm not putting it all out there right now. We're going to read the abstract together and hear their talking points about this. Um, but there are many folks who look at um, the missing links in the chain of hominid to primate to human evolution and say there's too big of a leap there between gorillas and bonobos and chimpanzees, bonobos and chimps even, who are our very closest relatives DNA-wise, um, to Homo sapiens sapiens. Um, and uh, that that is also perhaps the case with, you know, the other hominids that I don't know what we have DNA for or don't, you know, I don't know. I know we have some awareness of Neanderthal DNA because they map for that and identify for that in the modern DNA tests, right, supposedly. So um, anyway, that humans may have come from another planet in our near solar system. This is based on the improbability of us coming from any further away, that being intergalactic or interstellar distances, because it's just supposedly, you know, preposterously low probability of that happening. Um, you know, like being sperminated, germinated, seeded from any further away than when you look right around you and you see there are other celestial bodies right around you, that, you know, it's much more likely that if life didn't come from here, it came from something in the neighborhood, okay? The Ganymede hypothesis is dependent upon the solar system looking different than it looks today. There was a primordial solar system arrangement that existed before can't call it the modern era because we're talking about thousands if not tens of thousands of years ago in the case of this hypothesis I think they're putting it closer 
more like a few thousand years ago, okay? Maybe around the time of a lot of our creation myths, the flood myths, the stories uh, like the Epic of Gilgamesh, Noah's Flood, uh, stories of the Greek gods and their wars in the heavens for dominance, for ascendance, similar stories in Hinduism with the many creation gods of their culture as well, child gods fighting against and in some cases dismembering and destroying their parent gods, the, uh, I believe the scholarly interpretation of a lot of religious scriptures, you know, would take the point of view of the fact that these are multi-layered texts, um, allegorical, highly, highly symbolic, and um, in many cases, though, uh, clearly to a historian or a uh, anthropologist or a combination of those sort of uh, disciplines, uh, you know, clearly to them uh, representative of anthropomorphic uh, versions, you know, of celestial bodies, okay? So they had names like human names and personalities like human personalities and dramas that took place between them but they were at all times referring with Zeus and Jupiter and Apollo and Cronus and you know Marduk in in another tradition the Sumerian tradition um, uh, Marduk um, you know the list goes on um, that these gods were really you know, that they interacted with humans, that they were there, that they, uh, you know, that our life or death depended upon many of these central, these core gods, the most powerful uh, gods. The lesser gods, uh, you know, may have been something else entirely. Of course, there are hundreds of gods in different traditions, but the big ones that, you know, some of whom I just named, a few of whom I just named, um very few uh, were all really planets stars etc hence Jupiter Uranus Saturn you know these are uh, Venus right Greek goddess Venus Mercury the messenger you know Mars okay they're all named they're all named for you know gods these gods were named for bodies in the sky that were much closer to us and in a different configuration than they are today. These folks don't posit that there was no life on Earth before these, you know, strange hominids that became modern man um, came close enough to Earth and this part of the solar system to make the hop over, either in spacecraft or I don't know how. Um, and they don't, you know, they don't necessarily speak to that in this doc tonight. Um, 
I guess we better get into it, right? You know, sometimes what you gotta do, you're gonna you're gonna pause this. You're gonna listen to it in two parts. We're at 52 minutes right now, and we're jumping into the story, and we're gonna read together most of this abstract, uh, and you know, pause to make sure we understand it here and there. So, um, and I still didn't finish this joint. Holy shit! I'm holding a cold joint because I'm super stoned and I'm trying to tell you guys this story. Keep it together, Kaminsky. Alright, this is the Ganymede Hypothesis. This is, uh, this was published in 2013, so this is relatively modern. You know, these guys are talking about some stuff that, you know, they're going to refer to a bunch of concepts, some of which you guys may have heard of if you're um, familiar with any of this. Um, that's been going back for years now, decades in some cases. So this research has been going on for a while. Uh, this book was written by Theodore Holden and Troy McLaughlin, and we're going to read a few pages of a, uh abstract about the bigger book that they wrote here. We're going to light this thing, though, again, because we're going to get, we're gonna, by God, we're going to get through one joint, I'll tell you that. I rolled two. All right. Cosmos in Collision, a new book, co-authored by Theodore A. Holden and Troy D. McLaughlin, involves a startling claim that the authors have pinpointed to within a statistical certainty the original home of modern humans on the largest of Jupiter's moons, Ganymede. Hominid to human evolutionary schemes are shown to be unworkable. Humans are shown to be highly maladapted to the conditions of this planet in very ancient times, implying that we could not plausibly have evolved or been created for this planet. Ganymede is shown to be the remains of what would have been a perfect world for Elaine Morgan's aquatic ape thesis and for human habitation. That aquatic ape thesis is super cool and interesting. I read a book about it once a long time ago. Um, we should revisit that on a future podcast. It may come up again and again as we mess around with this Electric Universe stuff. I mean, it certainly, it does, it has, you know, and that's why I've heard of it over the years and read about it originally. Uh, okay. They go on. By, to within a statistical certainty, that is meant that a zero probability event or probabilistic miracle would have to have occurred for anything other than what the authors are proposing to have happened. So they're saying, yeah, this is this is it, you guys. This is like the, the simplest explanation. So, introduction. The original double solar system. Consider the axis tilts of planets in our system. If our system had formed from a swirling disk of solar material, as textbooks claim, all axial tilts should be approximately the same. That is, all near zero, 
with all axes of the planets roughly perpendicular to the plane of orbit. So you're going around in a big circle and you're spinning like tops in that big circle. And so your axial tilts will all resemble one another within a few degrees. If, you know, accretion disk, you know, model is to be, is legit. Okay, so, I can't keep this lit. Very good. Yep. The Sun, Jupiter, and Mercury do in fact show that. So they share the same axial tilt. The, the Sun, Jupiter, the biggest planet, and Mercury, the smallest, closest to the Sun. Uranus and Venus are odd cases out with their own explanations. But Neptune, Saturn, Mars, and Earth all have axis tilts of 23.4 to 27 degrees, so within a couple three degrees of each other. The explanation which suggests itself is as follows. Our Sun, Jupiter, and Mercury, with their axes roughly perpendicular to the plane of the system, form one part of the ancient system. Uranus and Venus are odd cases, again, with their own separate explanations. Neptune, Saturn, Mars, and Earth, with their spin axes roughly 26 degrees to the plane of the system, comprise what was once a separate system, which must have been captured by our present Sun as a group. The normal reaction is to assume that this occurred hundreds of millions of years ago. Ancient literature says it occurred a few thousand years ago. Primitive people seeking to devise an astral religion today would end up worshipping the sun and moon. But the two chieftain gods of all antique religions were Jupiter and Saturn. Plato consistently refers to antediluvians as nurslings of Kronos, Kronos being Saturn. The main religious festival in ancient Rome was Saturnalia. Our Sabbath is still called Saturday. Hesiod and Ovid claim there was a golden age when Saturn, aka Kronos, was king of heaven followed by the Great Flood, then a brief Silver Age, when Jupiter, Zeus, okay, same guy, was King of Heaven, followed by the Trojan War and our present Iron Age. In the same language, our Sun is the King of Heaven now. Right, Christ the Son of God. One point two. They introduce a concept. It's an astronomical or uh, an astronomy concept called a Herbig-Harrow object. Okay, Herbig-Harrow objects, and the way in which the axis tilts of the Saturnian part of our system came about. Post an 
pic on Instagram also of a Herbig Harrow object for you guys, okay? We'll do that too. Show you what they look like. Herbig Harrow objects are believed to be associated with protostars in their infancy. And the accepted view is that these baby stars are shooting out vast polar jets of gas along their rotational axis in which globules or beads of plasma collect in our now familiar string of pearls analogy. To their reader, it's familiar. To somebody like me who's been paying attention to it for a minute, it's familiar. You guys are going to get familiar here real quick. These so-called beads maintain their axial alignment and rotation in step with the protostar exactly in the manner suggested for the Earth-Saturn polar configuration. Here, in fact, is the elusive evidence pointing to the possibility that polar configurations are possible in the depth of space. So, when they're talking about these polar formations and stuff, this, you know, big spinning thing like a Sun or a Jupiter or a Saturn, right? We know these things emit a lot of energy. They emit a lot, emit a lot of radio energy. They have powerful atmospheres full of, of electricity. Um, they have strong, you know, sort of gravitational fields uh, as well, etc. Um, and uh, they have a lot of energy concentrated at their poles. So I imagine, again, when, like, I was talking about spinning like a top, if you think about like electrical motors and things like that, again, electric universe, um, you know, we spin things to create power and to, you know, I think out of a spinning motor, you're going to take it out of the top and bottom end of, you know, the axle itself of whatever little, you know, electric motor you've created or even a gas motor it rotates around the crank all around that axis, and the power comes from that spin, right? So, uh, yeah, back to the paper. What mainstream scientists identify as polar jets of hot gas, all right, so they call it like out of a star, right, a, a gas jet. <clears throat> These are, in fact, Birkeland currents the great interstellar and interplanetary transmission lines for the flow of electrical energy through interstellar space. These guys don't, I mean, let me tell you how interesting and weird the electric universe gets in one quick moment. Think of, you know, the model that's currently taught in schools. We are to believe that the sun is a gas giant that has a shitload of gases and uh, rare minerals and elements uh, inside of it that has a finite uh, amount of fuel that is in a constant, furious, gigantic, super nuclear fusion reaction um, that is, you know, somehow controllable and predictable and is going to last billions of years and slowly decay in a, you know, usually somewhat predictable fashion based on all these other observations around the uh, universe. Um, they would say that based on what they just talked about, things like Birkeland currents, they would directly associate a star like our sun with the front end of the back end of 
a black hole somewhere on the other side of the universe that's continuously sucking energy in. Um, things like our sun might also draw their energy source from more mellow forms of currents like these Birkeland currents, but, you know, stars of different types may be points of emission sort of like a, like an anode on a line in, an, in a giant electrical machine. So, uh, and, and that these suns are not necessarily, you know, finite in power. They may be continuously getting fed power, uh, not even getting fed power. They're emitting power because they have to because they're a blow-off valve for something that's taking in energy somewhere else. Um, yeah. All right. That's a really cool concept, too, that these guys bring up, and that we'll get back to. But that's what an electric universe sun would behave like versus a traditional astrophysics sun model that's one way so on these Birkeland currents they go on to tell us the beads of plasma all right that collect along these Birkeland currents are where something called Z pinches are taking place Z pinches are extremely stable areas into which heavy elements like iron ejected from the protostar or drifting in interstellar space are attracted and captured due to intense magnetic fields associated with Z-pinches. Electricity and magnetism go hand in hand, we know this, right? Some of these Z-pinches fail to spark into full-blown main-sequence stars and instead produce brown dwarfs. Okay, so a brown dwarf is like a star that's like kind of lit, but not totally lit, right? It's uh, like the pilot light is on sort of scene. Yeah, I just came up with that myself. Call it the pilot light. <laughs> well, they'll tell you what to call it. Don't call it the pilot light. I'm an idiot. <laughs> All right. Some of these Z-pinches fail to spark into full-blown main-sequence stars, instead produce brown dwarfs. They even may produce the solid cores needed for the formation of terrestrial-type planets. What? Interesting. Right? So, like, they spark and coalesce into actual matter. Um, all this is happening along the same axial alignment, though, of the protostar's shared rotation. Okay? So that's key. Because then whatever does form uh, uh, brown dwarf uh, main sequence, like yellow sun star, or maybe a protoplanet, um, you know, like a Mars, like an Earth, like any of us, like any of these moons of these bigger brown dwarfs and gas giants and things, um, they're going to spin like the thing that caused the Z current in the first place. And we're all, we're all, we know, we already know we're spinning through the universe, right? So I'm feeling it so far. So all this is happening along the same axial alignment of their protostar shared rotation. The so called Bow wave shocks, right, the bow of a boat, supposedly produced by the hot gas shooting out along the protostar's polar axis are nothing more than what plasma physics calls a double layer. 
These double layers, or DLs, are the signature effect of a Langmuir sheath. You know, another scientific person's name, right? Then he discovered the sheath, or in other words, a plasma sheath. The same protective electrical cocoon we have already encountered when looking at the electrical environment surrounding brown dwarf stars. So they, the brown dwarf like has a little hard uh, core of its actual matter, or you know, seemingly detectable you know matter. It's it's real point of emission, but then it has like a big bubble around it. Um, kind of like symmetrical and usually pretty opaque, right? Um, that weird object that we're watching out in space that has like things orbiting around it that's darkening in it and making it flicker and it had all the um, astronomers going crazy because they're like, oh, people could be harvesting energy from, you know, aliens could be harvesting energy from that star and there could be a whole civilization there. Da -da -da. Um, it's that kind of thing. In that case, they're looking at like a brown dwarf that has possibly planetary bodies inside its bubble spinning around it and are maybe occluding it from time to time and we have good telescopes now with Hubble and these other space telescopes and in this case I think that stuff they actually use radio telescopes for so again shut up Steve LA Confidential thank you everybody still trying to finish one joint for you it's unfucking believable lightweight <laughs> talk too much this is, this is the LeBron meme right now this is what he's doing to me right now he's like what's up <laughs> what? <laughs> anyway, all right. <sighs> all right, talking about those plasma sheaths. The same protective cocoon we've already encountered when looking at the electrical environment surrounding brown dwarf stars. The presence of that plasma sheath, their presence in Herbic Harrow objects, is a dead giveaway that serious electrical activity is taking place, the kind of activity that produces intensely strong and attractive magnetic fields. Wherever you have powerful magnetic fields, you have a recipe for potential planet and star birthing activity. It's the magnetism at work that attracts heavy elements like iron to form a solid core. It's this profusion of electrical activity that is most relevant to our assertion that Earth started off under Saturn according to this polar configuration model. Okay, so Saturn was different. Saturn was our star. We were in Saturn's orbit. The lifespan, and, and Saturn was a Herbig Harrow object, okay? So it was a brown dwarf, proto-brown dwarf. It had a bubble around it. They're calling it not the pilot light, but the anode glow. So little Saturn in the center, glowing in a big benevolent purple glow, purple dawn theory, come back to it, uh, and Earth and I think Mars at least were both inside this anode glow of Saturn. Around it, further out, were like maybe Uranus and uh, Neptune. I'm looking at, you know, this, we're going to link to this, of course. This is a huge PDF, and it's got images in it for you guys. Show notes. Always. That's what I was doing at the beginning there. Show notes. 
So, the lifespan of a Herbig Harrow object, which Saturn was, is relatively short, lasting in the tens of thousands of years. Things happen quickly when these objects are concerned, and they apparently begin to break up once the protostar at its center develops into a fully-fledged main-sequence star like our current sun. So if Saturn had turned into a sun, it would be over too. Any brown dwarfs and their satellites attached to such a former protostar, those will be released to form their own planetary nebula while finding their own way in space. brown dwarf star formed in this environment can be expected to maintain its own axially aligned Birkeland current even if it is severed from the main Birkeland current emanating from the main protostar. So wherever it spins off to, it's just going to keep spinning the same way. Object in motion, you know, blah, biggie, blah, blah, tends to, yeah, that kind of thing. Acting as a spinning homopolar electric motor or Faraday motor, there's that motor analogy, the new brown dwarf star will generate its own electrical equilibrium as it feeds from the same general galactic electrical circuit that's also driving the main protostar at the heart of the now breaking apart Herbig Harrow object. In this way, its axial tilt may change slightly, an important consideration when contemplating why Saturn came to have a different axial tilt to the Sun. So, you know, they're trying to account for I don't know if they're accounting for an anomaly in their own model there or if it's if people are you know drinking the Kool-Aid on that or not um yeah so anyway any close proximity protoplanets captured along the Birkeland current of this newly formed and now separated brown dwarf star either through ejection from a parent body or through the magnetic attraction of heavy elements into a Z-pinch, can also be expected to remain trapped in the Z-pinch in which they find themselves. Z-pinches are very stable, so it's like, you know, an electrical field that just locks each body in place, and they all move and spin together, and, you know, the electrical currents just flow like DNA back and forth, slaloming through them all, and at each intersection, of that twist think north and south poles right positive and negative poles um that's where those z pinches are z pinches are very stable electrical constructs and are capable of holding a planetary body in rotational lockstep alignment with the polarity of the brown dwarfs birkeland current the basic idea then is that our system began life as a Birkeland current and Herbig Harrow object, Saturn, and its satellites. The Sun then captured the northern components, particularly Jupiter, big, big Jupiter, which was even big then, and was a satellite of Saturn. They were in like a binary star kind of system because they're, as you know, even now, the closest in size to one another and both enormous. Uh, it captured the northern nord the sun, our sun, captured the northern components of this other system, particularly Jupiter, which retained its own axial alignment. All right, Jupiter held on to its alignment, which was different than the sun's. The southern part of the system, also retaining its own axial alignment, began a slow spiral 
into the Sun's neighborhood, finally approaching the Sun's plane of orbit in a line at a, about a 26-degree angle. This ultimately resulted in the present 26-degree off-angle of rotation of the former components of the Saturnian system. So we now orbit the sun and we look, you know, at a glance like we're on the same plane as them. But when you look at our rotational axes, each of us is wobbling at this angle. That's where our seasons come from, right? This ultimately resulted in the present 26 degrees angle of rotation of the former components of the Saturnian system. Uranus may have acquired its odd axis tilt from battering as the lead body when the Saturnian system moved into the present solar system, so maybe it took the brunt of the correction forces and pulled us all in behind it a little bit more gently is what they're positing there. That sounds like, you know, they're really, I don't know, that's right. You've got to, it's a lot of conjecture. But <clears throat> Venus is another special case. Bob Bass noted that Venus's retrograde spin cannot plausibly be primordial and must have arisen via entanglement with some other cosmic body. So I think Venus spins the whole other way to everybody else in the solar system, which is crazy. And I think it goes around the sun in the same direction as us all, but its, its own directional spin is backwards. So that's pretty cool. And, and what the fuck? What they say here? Plot... It could, cannot pl plausibly be primordial. It must have arisen via entanglement with some other cosmic body. And that the curious phase lock in which Venus shows observers on Earth the same face at inferior conjunctions implies that other body has to have been Earth. So, I think Venus faces us for extra long at those conjunctions. And uh, we have a strong magnetic field and strong gravitational field, etc., right? And we do have stories that associate Venus with cometary imagery. So, dark and bright sides of the ancient system. 2.1. Saturn, Mars, and Earth. In parentheses, how dark was it? Rocky planets orbiting a sub-round dwarf star would orbit inside the plasma sheath or heliosphere of the small star. Radiant energy would not be in short supply, but light would be, and would be canted towards the blue and red extremes of the visible spectrum. At a later point in time, the Earth acquired dust-laden auroral bands, which blocked out almost all light from north temporal latitudes. Duardu Cordona and other authors have described the curious lack of an ice age in the Arctic. At least some parts of the Earth went from being very dark places to being very, very dark places. The Sun and Jupiter in Ancient Times.
when the discovery of exoplanets was first, I think we're going to call the first joint done, you guys. It's like, I got it. I think I got it. It got me, too. We got each other. When the discovery of exoplanets was first confirmed, it was natural that there would be a sampling bias towards finding large gas-like giants since their enormous physical size made them easier to detect than smaller-sized terrestrial-type planets like Earth. Makes perfect sense, right? You spotted a Jupiter out there way easier than you could spot an Earth or a Venus. What was not anticipated, however, was that these huge gas giants, some many times the mass of Jupiter even, would be found circling in extremely close orbits around their host stars. This fact that a big gold Jupiter would be that close to the sun, because ours is a ways out, um, is completely at odds with the accepted SNDM notion of planetary formation. The gravitational-based nebular model for the formation of solar system calls for gas giant planets to inhabit the system's outer edges, while smaller terrestrial planets are expected to take up the innermost orbits. I guess what, like the big heaviest marbles are supposed to spin to the outside of the roulette wheel and the little guys staying a little bit closer for longer. Um, when Jupiter-sized planets, or, quote, hot Jupiters, as they were subsequently called, started appearing where Earth-like planets should be, journalists covering mainstream science started talking about going back to the drawing board. Quote, as astronomers discovered the first extrasolar planets, it quickly became obvious that the formation theories that we'd built on our own solar system were only part of the story. They didn't predict the vast number of hot Jupiters astronomers found nearly everywhere. Astronomers went back to the drawing board to put more details into the theory. With gas giant exoplanets now regularly discovered within one to two astronomical units of their host stars, we now have growing data pointing to the common existence of gas giants within the habitable zone of far-off distant sun-like stars. Gas giants not unlike our own Jupiter. It would then not be untoward to suggest that, given the then absence of other major planets seen today, the sun's sole and original gas giant, namely Jupiter, would most likely have been found in a much closer orbit to the one it currently holds, as seems to be the norm elsewhere. So they're saying we're the anomaly, not them. If such an orbit were within one to two astronomical units of the sun, where the Earth is now, then it's reasonable also to suggest that Jupiter's three currently ice-covered moons, Europa, Ganymede, and Callisto, would have enjoyed liquid water environments, spectacularly conducive to the existence of aquatic-based life. They had also borne substantive atmospheres. Had they also borne substantive atmospheres. By the way, everybody, a great example in recent times of a popular science fiction movie that features a lot of this mythology is the sci-fi movie Prometheus. Um, to an extent, the 
Arthur C. Clarke 2001 and 2010 A Space Odyssey movies also deal with some of that uh, Jupiter as a potential point of origin for human life uh, or the moons of Jupiter or Saturn. So, you know, this stuff is not, you know, new, as I've already mentioned. 2.3. Creatures of the Saturnian Dark System. Dark is in parentheses, so they're just pointing out from the dark, darker era of this Saturnian system before it came in close contact with the sun. Maybe before the sun flared. Most, if not all, of the creatures of the Saturnian system, particularly dinosaurs and hominids, had larger eyes than we normally see in today's land mammals, land animals. The eyes are the first thing a viewer notices. With Danny Vendramini's Neanderthal reconstructions, they have a few uh, images in here and definitely showing, you know, I guess I, maybe he clay modeled on top of the Neanderthal skull, but it looks like a really interesting and much different depiction than I've seen before of a Neanderthal. He looks a lot closer to a gorilla type uh, appearance than what I'm used to seeing. And then below that is a little bit more human guy. He may be a Neanderthal. Yeah, he's, a, he's definitely a more humanized version. Um, and that still has big, big eyes and a big super wide nose, much different uh, than, you know, even most folks today. So, um, anyway. So they're talking about the large eyes and, and stuff of land mammals, like current real uh, land mammals, uh, animals, in contrast to humans, right? They still do have these big eyes. They still do have these large, sensitive noses. And we're talking giraffes and talking, uh, you know, uh, freaking cows. And we're talking dogs and we're talking, you know, kitties. Everybody sees better than us. Everybody smells better than us. Everybody hears better than us. Um, and in fact, you know, nobody needs to wear sunglasses but us, right? <laughs> <clears throat> anyway, if you draw a humanized Neanderthal with the eyes and nose as large as the bones indicate they would have to be, what you end up with is still outlandish. That, you know, humanized looking but still giant eyed, giant nosed uh, image that they share with us here. The Neanderthal, in fact, had a larger brain than modern humans do, but was not inventive like modern humans. Okay. We, we have heard that the brain is bigger, right? Everybody's heard that, um, volume wise. Given a creature with a larger brain than ours, and tens of thousands of years to work with, one might expect to find Neanderthal cities. Of course, there aren't any. New studies are indicating that, quote, and italics, results imply that larger areas of the Neanderthal brain compared to the modern human brain were given over to vision and movement, and this left less room for the higher level thinking required to form large social groups. In other words, the Neanderthal brain was dominated by what you might call the neurological equivalent of the circuitry for military night vision scope. 
very cool. But yeah, interesting. It might dominate your, you know, consciousness and behavior. If, you know, could you imagine if you had your eyes turned up to, you know, even four or five times more sensitive to light and, you know, maybe seeing distance better and better peripheral vision than we have today. Uh, ordinarily, that would be pretty bonkers. It might be kind of overwhelming. Anyway, 2.4 creatures of the sun slash Jupiter, the bright system. So those, uh, the, the big eyes, etc., were the adaptations of the creatures of the Saturnian system. Okay. Uh, they needed that night vision scope, right? The dark system creatures needed those adaptations. If you can't see it, you could smell it or hear it. Humans and dolphins have the smallest relative eye sizes of creatures, higher creatures. Both would be very bad candidates for having either evolved or been created for the Saturnian system. Okay, 2.5. The human-hybrid non-relation. No, the human hominid non-relation. Just making sure I didn't accidentally stop recording. You know, I've done that a few times on this, haven't I? I even did it earlier this uh, episode, didn't we? If you, if you listen carefully, you, you could hear when it happened. For sure. Okay. The human hominid non-relation. So, uh... picking right back up here I, I paused for a moment there again and just regrouped as a matter of fact I paused overnight top secret you didn't even know that happened did you it's the next morning at LA Confidential worked my ass last night at midnight when I was trying to do this for you when I was doing this for you I listened back to the last few minutes fuck it doesn't sound much less coherent than my usual ramblings, especially since I'm reading this doc for us. We left off with the human hominid non-relation there. Jumping back in this morning with a fresh cup of coffee and that whole second joint valet confidential. We're going to face it down. We got courage. I mean, scared of this thing. <laughs> especially because we got our nice night's sleep under our belts and a cup of coffee to help us through so humans would have been maladapted to earth's ancient conditions in at least three ways and these three problems would have been severe enough to rule out any sort of hominid to human evolutionary schemes in other words a hominid wishing to evolve into a human would need to have, one, lost his fur coat while an ice age was going on. Two, lost 99% of his sense of smell while trying to make it as a prey animal on land. Three, would have lost almost all of her night vision 
at a time when night was the only time of day to be had. We read, in parentheses, Pabo and Max Planck, famous physicists, that some, again in parentheses, not all, modern human groups share Neanderthal genes, and that this implies some level of interbreeding between our own ancestors and Neanderthals. Such claims have to be able to pass simple sniff tests for logic to be believable, and these claims don't. Cosmos and Collision goes into these questions in some detail. Again, I'll briefly point out that I'm not here to say that we are or aren't evolved from, related to, derived from uh, Neanderthals in part, or uh, not in whole, because I believe it is well understood that we're an outgrowth of Cro-Magnon man. Anyhow, this is their position, though. You know, they state it fairly eloquently. 2.6. What do humans need from an environment? An original home world for humans would have to have been bright. Darkless, darkness, mainly induces humans to sleep, and human eyes would have been all but worthless in the conditions of the Saturnian dark system. Such an original world would also have been, also have needed to be wet. Elaine Morgan of the that aquatic ape theory, Elaine Morgan cataloged a fairly long list of features which humans share with the aquatic mammals. Here's a few. One, the most obvious visual difference between us and primates is the fact of our legs being our major limbs. That is basically an adaptation for swimming and wading. Two, voluntary control of our breathing is an example. This is basically an adaptation for swimming. We take it for granted, but monkeys and apes don't have it. And that is the only reason that chimpanzees and gorillas cannot be taught to speak English. Evidently not a voice box matter, you know, other stuff like that that we've heard of. It's breath control, you know, controlling your vocal cords to make sounds. They could be taught to communicate using deaf signs, sign language, fairly easily. Fairly easily, I mean. Anyway, I guess if you work with them every day. Face-to-face -face sex is a behavioral characteristic of aquatic mammals. Interesting. So I guess dolphins must do it that way. If any land animals other than humans do this, it's very rare. Likewise, sweating and the way in which humans use fat are maladaptive for a land animal, but reasonable for an aquatic animal. That's like our fat layer right under the epidermis, um, and it's like detached from the rest of our, uh, you know, layers of uh, skin and body. Uh, anyway, interesting shit. Anyway, they go on. And we're getting down to it. We're almost there. There are numerous other such examples, i.e., the list is a fairly long one. Humans still show a preference for living around water. Most of our major cities now stand on the shore of some body of water, and going to the beach is a worldwide trait amongst humans vacationing. 
Yet another measure of the extent to which humans still prefer living near water today can be had from the fact that something like 80% of the targets... This is an interesting thing. I mean, I don't know why you'd make this point, but 80% of the targets that the U.S. military might ever want to engage are said to have been within the 25-mile range of the guns of Iowa-class battleships. That is to say, within 25 miles of some shoreline. Elaine's Mor Elaine Morgan's thesis has never gained any traction ac in academia, and there are two main reasons. One is that no fossil evidence of any sort of an aquatic ape has ever been found. The other, and more serious problem, is that there's never been a body of water on this planet which would be safe for humans to actually live in. An original home world for humans would need to have been bright, it would need to have been wet, and its waters would need to have been safe. A ten-minute tour of the ancient sea monster exhibit hall of the Smithsonian Museum should convince anybody that the prehistoric oceans of this planet would not qualify. Section 3. Ganymede. We better spark this. Confidential round two. This stuff was like truth serum last night. You could have could have got me on anything if you were here. All right. 3.1. Jupiter's antique environment and location. In parentheses, large, close in, exoplanet. Ancient Jupiter is elevated to the substellar status of having once been a T-class sub-brown dwarf, enjoying a much tighter orbit around the sun within the latter's so-called habitable zone. This revised orbital relationship is arrived at after assessing recent exoplanet data that shows growing numbers of Jupiter-like planets and suspected brown dwarfs in similar orbits around other sun-like stars. The data, we suggest, points to close-orbiting Jupiter-like planets being the norm throughout the universe. This fact supports our hypothesis while contradicting currently accepted notions for gas giant planet formation according to the accretion dictates of the solar nebular disk model. Ganymede would have been warned, warmed by both Jupiter and that former brown dwarf state, and our sun, also ignited in this timeline. This next section is interesting. I, I was unaware of this. But, 3.2, brown dwarf stars and water. Jupiter's reclassification as a former T-class sub-brown dwarf also provides a solution as to where all the water currently locked up as ice on the Galilean moons comes from. 
Brown dwarf stars are known carriers of water. And the misting and shedding of this water within a brown dwarf's plasma sphere, the bubble, can be expected to settle on any rocky satellites orbiting within the bubble. It is precisely this scenario that we suggest for the origins of the vast amounts of water ice found on the Jovian satellites. 3.3. Freshwater oceans. Ganymede seems to be remarkably deficient in the element sodium, salt. Sodium is 13 times less abundant around Ganymede than it is around the other Jovian moon, Europa. Io, Jupiter's highly volcanic moon, is awash in sodium. However, Ganymede is not, and whatever small amounts of sodium have been detected on its surface is thought to have somewhere found its way there from Ganymede's supposedly deep, salty ocean. Cosmos in Collision proposes non-standard explanations for Ganymede's conductivity, magnetosphere, and low moment of inertia. <coughs> Excuse me. <coughs> Take a sip of this coffee. What's this moment of inertia about? 3.4. Ganymede's moment of inertia. Water or pumice. Ganymede's ultra-low moment of inertia is normally assumed to indicate a fantastically deep ocean. Basically an outer mantle composed of salt water, which supposedly accounts for both the low moment of inertia and the conductivity required for the magnetosphere. Cosmos in Collision postulates an outer mantle of pumice to explain the moment of inertia and pee holes to explain the conductivity. Those might be polar holes. I'm not sure. They'll probably explain it here for us. 3.5. Pumicebergs and Islands. Still on Ganymede, everybody. A freshwater ocean lies over top of the pumice outer mantle. Pumice actually can float. In the age when Ganymede was inhabited, I, I believe when they're talking about pumice, they're talking about volcanic pumice, a volcanic rock form, but it's filled with air holes, right? So it can float. Um, in an age when Ganymede was inhabited, there were floating bergs of pumice, as well as anchored islands of pumice. So pumice, pumice bergs and pumice islands. Interesting. Vegetation grew easily and well on these bergs and islands. Cosmos in Collision proposes that the rocky lumps found in the present ice of Ganymede are remnants of these pumice bergs and islands. Three point six. Radiation. Ganymede's magnetosphere. 
As mentioned above, Cosmos in Collision proposes a non-standard explanation for Ganymede's magnetosphere. It is worth noting that Ganymede alone amongst Jupiter's Galilean moons has a magnetosphere. Of Jupiter's Galilean moons, Io and Europa are inside Jupiter's radiation belt. Callisto, outside of Jupiter's radiation belt, would still experience radiation from the Sun and shows no sign of ever having had an oxygen atmosphere. Ganymede, with its intrinsic magnetosphere, is safe from all radiation, shows signs of a past oxygen atmosphere, and in past ages would have amounted to a freshwater ocean paradise. Section 4. Capture of the Saturnian System and Transfer. 4.1. The Sudden Appearance of Cro-Magnon Man. This is one of my favorite topics, everybody. I really hope I'm introducing it for the first time to a few of you. Um, because there's a lot of material here. A person could probably do an entire podcast just on, like, overviews and analysis and conversations about the concepts discussed in and amongst the resources of the Thunderbolts Project and the folks sort of putting out the electric universe theory. favorite anti-tunes right here. This episode and every episode of the Baked and Wake podcast that you listen to, uh, the really cool instrumental background music that you've been hearing for so many episodes already is original scores created by Antti Luode of Finland, a wonderful resource I found via Reddit. And, uh, He's just a wonderful artist, continually adding music to this folder that he provides royalty-free for everyone in the podcast and creative community. I think you can agree it adds a lot to our entire podcast experience, so as always, thank you, Auntie. I love his tunes. All right, we're in 4.1, The Sudden Appearance of Cro-Magnon Man. We're smoking L.A. Confidential once again. One thing scholars all agree on is that whatever caused Cro-Magnon people to appear on this planet when they did was not gradual. Vendramini, in parentheses, them and us, this is the book they're quoting, notes. The speed of the Upper Paleolithic Revolution in the Levant was also breathtaking. Anthropologists Ofer Bar Yosef and Bernard Vandermesh, quote, between 40,000 and 45,000 years ago, the material culture of Western Eurasia was changed more than it had been during the previous million years. This efflorescence of techn technological and artistic creativity signifies the emergence of the first culture 
that observers today would recognize as distinctly human. Marked as it was by the unceasing invention and variety. During that brief period of 5,000 or so years, the stone tool kit, unchanged in its essential form for ages, suddenly began to differentiate wildly from century to century and from region to region. Why it happened, and why it happened when it did, constitute two of the greatest outstanding problems in paleoanthropology. Four point two. The spiral approach of the Saturnian system. The Saturnian system did not approach our sun in a straight line. It was a spiral approach, and it was only at the points of near intersection that the transfer of living creatures would have been possible. The multi-thousand-year time-lapse between the Cro-Magnon saltation and Genesis, the Bible's Genesis, is thus explained as the time between two such near approaches. We have a depiction here showing the sun in, you know, on a star background in the top right corner of the picture, and then uh, the Saturnian system, three or four bodies, approaching it kind of like off to the left in a corkscrew moving forward through space in a corkscrew in what we would call a spiral or a torus type um, pattern of behavior. Four point three Cro Magnets and Bible Antediluvians. There appear to be two original, basic human groups on our planet, Cro-Magnons and Bible Antidiluvians. Some say these are, um, if not the Canaanites, they're other people that have been named in the Bible, in, in Scripture, as existing before Adam, right? Another, another show. The two were all but genetically identical, but the original cultures and technologies were completely different due to the time lapse. Both groups appear to be capable of producing any color or feature found amongst human, modern humans. So that is to say, you know, race. I.e. the difference was, is, not about color or race. Cro-Magnons thus account for the, quote, pre-Adamites, there you go, that's who they call them, pre-Adamites, who Cain worries about in Genesis 4, there we go, and whose existence answers other biblical conundrums. There's no way to believe that Adam, Eve, or any of the people in Genesis were descended from Cro-Magnons. There's a list of things which the Bible and Jewish literature would have to know about were that the case that I guess they're positing that they don't. Aside from everything else, the people of Genesis were metal technology people from day one, i.e., there was never any kind of a stone age amongst them. 
Cosmos in Collision, the book that they're, you know, that they keep referring to with this paper, this abstract, goes into these questions in some detail. <clears throat> Occam's Razor and Other Possibilities. In the absence of time machines, Cosmos in Collision makes heavy use of the logical principle called Occam's Razor. Named after Friar William Occam, the principle is generally understood to mean that of competing theories with equal explanatory power. The simplest among them should be preferred. In particular, given the immense distances between stars in our galaxy, and the presence of a completely plausible origin for modern man within our own solar system. Theories involving saltations from other star systems are ruled out. Likewise, the possibility of humans arising on something entirely like Ganymede, which has since been destroyed, leaving no trace, is also ruled out. In other words, for the Ganymede hypothesis to be wrong, one of two flavors of a probabilistic miracle or zero probability event would have had to occurred. That is, human saltation from interstellar space or from a missing twin of Ganymede. So... You made it. They have a full page of references here on this PDF. This PDF is called the Ganymede Hypothesis Abstract. This is sort of an introduction to the topics covered in the 2013 book, Cosmos in Collision. The book itself, um, I've read most of it because I believe I got it. I believe it's available in PDF form. In addition to ebook format on the web, I believe a couple of people have uploaded it in PDF form here and there. Um, if not, Thunderbolts Project may make it available to read right there on their website. Um, I'm going to link you to the Thunderbolts Project. I'm going to link you to Cosmos and Collision, which has its own website. There's a great there's videos embedded right on Cosmos and Collision's website. Just you know, free to to watch YouTube stuff. Um, the book's contents were iterated up into a nicely produced YouTube video as well, which I have watched multiple times over the years. Uh, my wife laughs at me all the time because I make her, I put on Pyramid Code all the time too. <laughs> it's one of my favorites. I really do like that one. Uh, you should check it out if you haven't if you haven't watched Pyramid Code yet. It's so peaceful, it's so relaxing, and, it, and it's just, they put it together so well. I, I just love it. Um, you know, if you want to ask me where I come down on the side of in terms of uh, believing, you know, these sort of analyses and interpretations of, uh, you know, the creation of the universe, um, the creation of our, um, you know, modern world, uh, human culture and society. How do we make sense of things like uh, biblical scriptures all around the world that, you know, people to this day, you know, uh, by the millions live and die by the... Uh, you know, their belief in and the, the differences in their interpretations between. Uh, I needn't go into the troubles around the world. We, we see them. They're being forced down to our 
phones daily, whether we ask for them or not. Uh, I guess I would say I certainly, right now, and talking about these topics, talking about the the part of history and the uh, books and the area where we are, the area where we're looking for the evidence to support the Ganymede hypothesis in scripture and in art and in oral tradition and in the mythological god pantheon of the past uh, is the cradle of human civilization, therefore the cradle of modern Western religion, religion in general. And uh, I guess, yeah, short story there. I'm feeling for everybody in Palestine and what's going on in that part of the world. Um, it's terrifying to see daily the reports of the aggression over there by Israel. And, the, and I feel like we, our foreign policy is a major factor in pouring gas on that flame. So that's as far as we'll go on that right now. Back on topic. Electric universe theory is uh, one of the most fascinating uh, of the alternative uh, histories or sciences that I've ever come upon. Um, plasma physics, as contrasted to traditional astrophysics and the way plasma physics being, you know, a, a physics of electrical plasma, this state of matter and how it behaves and uh, where we can see just by looking all around us into the night sky examples of what look like more than anything like electrical interactions um, between bodies uh, is something that is enduringly interesting to me and you know, with everyone's permission, I think we'll spend more time going into this in the future. Uh, by no means will we do it, you know, every week. We'll take break. We'll move around. We'll come back to it. We'll go deeper on the stuff that bears going deeper on. The Ganymede hypothesis that we just read here uh, alluded to and introduced the concept of the Purple Dawn theory. Uh, that being that humans lived on this other body, be it Ganymede, one of the other satellites, um, but they're certainly, you know, narrowing it right down to Ganymede here. That, you know, that you and me and everybody who's the modern Homo sapien more or less came from a brighter system. Um... That being, so, the Jupiter system, right? Ganymede. Um, but when the Jupiter system and the Saturn system came into collision, cosmos in collision, everything got spun up, mixed up. The sun, our modern sun, got trapped in one of those Z-pinches got fed a little bit more power at the same time that Jupiter and Saturn, the former two big heavyweights, both of whom were partially lit, pilot light style, plasma bubble status, both of which may have had satellites inside of it, um, came together. 
when they came together, Saturn became ascendant. Jupiter's satellite, Ganymede, came into that range, was protected by its position in, in the arrangement of bodies for 10, 20, 30,000 years, 50,000 years, something like that, long enough. But the sun, the whole time, is getting stronger. Jupiter and Saturn are losing energy and sort of winking out. Venus was somehow potentially created in this same time or pulled from one orbit to another violently. We see evidence of impacts all over Mars, impacts all over many of the moons of Saturn and Neptune and Jupiter. Uh, Uranus is in the mix there, as we heard. Everybody is. So, uh, all right. It's been a huge, long episode. It's probably going to two hours. What the hell? Where are we? Let's take a peek. Uh, that's the last song. Let's stop that one. Let's move it on. Let's move it along. We'll just keep it live. Fuck it. We'll do it live. 201. Yeah. 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 Long episode, everybody. I don't know. It'll probably come out to two hours after I edit out some of my borking and choking. Thank you, everybody who listens. Thank you to all my friends for all your support. Um, thank you to Budsy for jumping on board and getting involved. I hope you guys enjoyed LA Confidential and this intro, anyway, to the Ganymede Hypothesis, Cosmos and Collision, the Thunderbolts Project, Electric Universe Theory, Purple Dawn, did I say that? You know I did. If you didn't know it before, now you know what red booking is. Don't red book anybody. Go ahead, red book whoever you want. Just be nice about it. You better fess up after you do it. And if you chip drop somebody, I swear to God, you didn't hear it from me. Uh, next week, we are, I'm sure, we're probably going to be talking about mulch a little bit more because I'm not done with that shit. You know that, so... Uh, I think we're going to talk about Back to Eden Gardening just a little bit. And uh, I think I'm going to try to get my act together to start to dig into that potential Nexium Landmark Forum connection and a few other fun things. There's, uh, yeah, things like the disparity between our desire for privacy online and our actual behaviors and how much we do to protect ourselves in practice versus what we profess to like, not like, or care to tolerate. Alrighty. You guys have been great. I've super enjoyed talking about this and rambling about it and getting stupidly stoned off of one and a half joints. We got a little bit of a stub left of this LA Confidential. I did better on it this morning than I did last night in terms of keeping it going and actually smoking through it. <laughs> Strong stuff. Get you some. All right, you guys. Uh, I'm going to put this out on Monday morning for you, for your Monday morning commute. I hope you have a super duper week. I hope wherever you are, whoever you're with, Whatever you're getting up to, you're remembering. Smoke that indica.
do shit anyway.